we'll keep this short and sweet. This episode is a fantastic conversation with Dr. Stephanie Green about medical assistance in dying. And off the top, I'd like to mention that Dr. Green just released a book called This is Assisted Dying, available at your chosen bookseller. We'd also like to remind you of uh, Theracil's preparation for a charter challenge to improve access to psilocybin, specifically for people with terminal diagnosis. And we encourage you to check out their website and what they're doing at theracil.ca. That's T H E R A P S I L.ca. Mm-hmm. I think we mentioned it last time, but if not, here's the announcement. And if so, here's a reminder. We have so many fascinating conversations ready to go that we're moving to weekly releases on Sundays. Yay! And also a heads up to listen for some interesting new sponsors we have coming on board starting next episode. That's right, Amanda. And speaking of sponsorship, we are sponsoring a comedy tour right now that's ongoing. Um, please check out Comedy on the Verge on Instagram. Facebook, and also their webpage, comedytheverge.com. Yeah, awesome. Enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to Talk Me to Death. I'm your host, Amanda, here with my co-host, Andrew. Hello. And today we are speaking with our guest, Dr. Stephanie Green, about medical assistance in dying. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited that you're here. I really, really can't express how much I appreciate that you're sitting down to speak with us. This is fantastic. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. So um, in previous episodes already, just given the nature of the podcast, we actually have had the concept of medical assistance in dying come, come up a number of times with other conversations we've had. So it's really fantastic that we're able to sit down and speak specifically to that topic now. Sure. And, and obviously you are what I would consider an expert in this area given your background. So would you be able to start by telling us a little bit about your background, how you came to be a participant in and an advocate for medical assistance in dying and sort of where you are and what you do now? Sure. So I was actually trained as a family physician way back eons ago. And um, I loved my career in family medicine. I did... 10 years of what we used to call cradle-to-grave medicine, so general practice, uh, but always had a really strong interest in maternity care. I actually did partial fellowships in infant and maternal care, as well as palliative care uh, when I finished my residency. So, so you really did both ends. I was always kind of interested in both ends, but I, ch- I chose to follow um, my path through maternity and newborn care. And after 10 years of general practice with a big focus on maternity, I decided to do something kind of odd. I decided to do exclusively maternity and newborn care. And I did about 12 years of that. And then, and then I made the pivot in 2016 when the law changed. And uh, since that time, I've been working almost exclusively in end-of-life care. I still do infant male circumcision, which grew out of my maternity practice. Uh, and I, I spend about 90% of my time in, in uh, assisted dying. I'm also one of the co-founders and the current president of the Canadian Association of Maid Assessors and Providers, which is the national nonprofit that supports the people that do this work. So primarily the clinicians that do the work, but also the entire team of people, because it's really multidisciplined work. Mm. Uh, and I'm also the medical advisor to the BC um, Maid Oversight Committee. And I wear a number of different hats, but I've been an, an active assessor and provider for Maid since June of 2016. So with, when the regulations were coming into play in 2016, had you been involved in the development of the regulations or, or was it something that came onto your plate once they were already in place? 
So I wasn't involved in the regulations coming on or, or any of the legal uh, cases or courses. I was um, quite active in the maternity care up until about 2014 or so. And around that time, I was actually looking to make a shift in my career for a number of reasons. But uh, it all kind of was coming together. I had when, when I was actually when I was in medical school and I was doing a course on bioethics, uh, we were learning all kinds of, you know, principles and values in class and discussing medical conundrums. But at the exact same moment, Sue Rodriguez was in the national headlines. And so we kind of had this live action story happening at the same time. And so that was the first time I heard about assisted dying. And I was kind of following it like all Canadians. Mm -hmm. And of course, we talked about it in class because it was right there. So I kind of had an introduction to the topic at that time. And then throughout my career, I'd always followed the issue uh, because I've always been interested in the intersection between medicine, ethics and law. And for most of my career, that was manifest through women's health and reproductive rights and a variety of issues in general practice and, and maternity care. But I, I was kind of following the story when 20 years later, the Carter case happened. And like most Canadians, again, started, you know, learning and listening to what was going on. And it was very different this time. So very and I was a practicing physician with 20 years of experience at that time. So a different angle. Um, and as I saw that coming to fruition and actually turning into a change in our law, I started wondering Who's going to do this work? Mm-hmm. And throughout a lot of my career, I've also, I've also kind of had a bit of a soft spot for the underdog. I like to take care of the complex maternity case, patients and the, you know, some of the younger women. And um, I've always kind of, kind of been interested in that. And so I, when I started asking those questions, it, it became very clear to me that not too many people would be stepping forward to do this work. And I really felt like it was something I could do and I felt was important to do. And it, it fit with some career changes I wanted to make at the time. So. I got involved this, uh, about the six months before the law changed, uh, started to educate myself about it and get some information so that I could be ready in June yeah. of 2016. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. So it sounds like it was a, a cumulative passion that sort of brought you to... Absolutely. Right. It's, it's never a single line. It's a zigzag <laughs> for sure. And uh, we, we'd need much more time and a glass of wine to go through all the details. <laughs> <laughs> when, when you were first starting out, because you were you know at, at the very cutting edge of it, how did you... How did you find people like your your coworkers, your friends, family? How did you find the response to that? Because it was so new. It was so new. It really was. Um, I, I I consider myself quite quite lucky. I when I started asking the questions about who was going to do this, how we were going to get regulated, who's in charge, there were no answers literally. But what I did find is I I called the local regulating body, like my, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of BC, to ask those questions, mm-hmm. and they said they didn't have all the answers just yet, but they could give me the names of two colleagues that were also asking the same questions. And so. Quite early on, I was connected to two colleagues in town. We all had the same kind of questions in our minds. And the three of us went to a conference at the same time. Uh, It happened to be in Amsterdam in 2016, right before our law changed. And it really kind of opened our eyes to a lot of what we needed to learn from people who had already been doing it in other jurisdictions. And it was really an extraordinary experience. And, And from that, we met other people and we came back and stayed in touch. And, you know, they told two friends and they told two friends. And, and very quickly, we established a very small group of clinicians who were going to be trying to do this work. And quite honestly, we learned together. Yeah. Um, and so that's really where where that all came from. But in terms of family and friends, uh, it was all just a big question mark in the beginning. People didn't know what yeah. to make of this. Yeah. Well, I have a question because I so I, I'm here because I uh, I offer sort of the everyman thing because Amanda is in the medical 
profession, of course. Right. So I, I, the first thing I heard you say there was, so what were those three questions that you had in your mind? Uh, I know that might be a rabbit hole to go down, but when you went to Amsterdam, what were those three questions that you had? Well, I had, I had three colleagues. I had many questions. Oh, sorry, but sorry. I had about a hundred questions, to be honest. Uh, but what, were the, what were the main things that you were looking for when you went to Amsterdam to sort yeah. of answer, like what to decide how to go? So way? when I went to Amsterdam, I, had, I was not yet certain I was going to do the work. Mm -hmm. So I really went with um, the questions in my mind were really, who does this work? Is it is it rigorous? Like, is there science behind it? Is there data? Who asks for this care? Mm -hmm. who, who are those people? How is it regulated? What medications do they use? What does it feel like to do this work? Um, what are the problems that they've encountered? What are the ethical debates about it that I'm not even aware of? Mm. Kind of a, a, a large cornucopia of questions. Sure. I really wanted to kind of immerse myself in it as much as I could to see if I felt uneasy in the topic itself, right. in what I was learning about it, in how it felt to be, to be interacting with with these with these colleagues. Sure. Yeah. Now, so what are because uh, again, I, I'm kind of I try to come in. I, I do know a little bit about the the Sue Rodriguez case, and and again, I try to come in a little bit blank, but also I'm wondering who was the who were the countries that were doing this before that Canada sort of looked to for guidance on this. And so before Canada was um, was uh, doing this work. Uh, the well, really, the the original was the state of Oregon, mm, which passed right. law in 1997. Wow. Didn't come into effect till 98 for a bunch of political reasons. Mm -hmm. But uh, we often talk about, and much of our model is based on the Dutch program in the Netherlands. Okay. They've been doing this legally since 2002. But I think oh, wow. there was some pressure from the medical associations and from the clinicians even before that. But the law changed in 2002 and also in Belgium in 2002. Mm. Switzerland's been doing it for longer, but a little bit differently. Uh, there are, when I first started doing this, there were five American states that had some form of assisted dying. Mm -hmm. There are now 11. There's mm. been a tremendous change in the last few years. Mm -hmm. But the Canadian model is much more comparable to the European models okay. uh, than the others. Interesting. Okay. Good to know. And which is the perfect tie-in. So for those people who don't know, right now, what is the process to access medical assistance in dying in Canada? And how how has that changed from when you first started? And uh, maybe we could also speak a little bit about like planned changes for the future, because I know that there are sure. some adjustments pending. Yeah, so so lots of information there. So I'll, I'll try to keep it concise, but complete. So I, I would actually say it's important to note that in the beginning, um, and I mentioned Sue Rodriguez, because Sue Rodriguez was coincidentally a woman from Victoria, B.C., who first challenged Canada's blanket prohibition of assisted dying. So you need to understand that before our law changed, it was simply illegal mm -hmm. to assist someone to end their life, even that. with their consent. Mm -hmm. um, and Sue Rodriguez lost her fight at the Supreme Court level. There was a... Um, uh, a split decision five to four against her. And it wasn't so much that the concept of assisted dying was not agreed upon. It was that it wasn't felt that it could be done safely with adequate safeguards or that maybe society wasn't ready for that. And that was back in, in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Jump 20 years later, and I, I mentioned the Carter case, which started in 2011 and was decided in 2015. And I won't go through all the shenanigans, but ultimately uh, that went also to the Supreme Court of Canada. And at that time, there was a unanimous decision by nine Supreme Court judges that struck down the blanket prohibition. Mm -hmm. In fact, what that case suggested is that, is that there are certain circumstances in which it would be allowable to assist someone to die. So basically, if it was a big black box before, they carved out an area 
under which that would be okay. It mm. would no longer be criminal. And they laid out the criteria for that, which we can or don't need to go through all of that. And so once that happened, the government had a choice to either do nothing and let that just simply be legal or to regulate the practice. And of course, the idea was that they wanted to regulate the practice. And so they made legislation, which is commonly referred to as C-14, which was the bill that became the law uh, to regulate MAID. And it laid out the eligibility criteria for MAID and the safeguards that needed to be followed. And rather than go through that with you, I'm just going to say that that law was amended in March of 2021 based on primarily an important court case that happened in Quebec that challenged um, some of those criteria and safeguards. And so there was a tweaking of the law. So with that background in mind, right now, as it stands, if you want to access assisted dying in Canada, there are five things that need to be true. It's what I refer to as the eligibility criteria. And very quickly and, and simply, although they're not simple, uh, you need to be an adult. So you have to be at least 18 years of age. You need to be eligible for Canadian government-funded health care. So that doesn't mean you need to be a citizen, but you need to have status, refugee status, landed immigrant status. Mm -hmm. You might be a Canadian who lives elsewhere, but if you came back home, you'd be eligible. So if you're eligible for Canadian health care, you're eligible for, to meet this criteria. The third criteria is that you need to make a voluntary request. There can be no sense of coercion obvious, external, subtle, internal, but it needs to be an uncoerced voluntary request. You need to have the capacity to make this request and to give informed consent. And that's a medical term, meaning that you mm -hmm. have a full understanding of what you're requesting, basically. Sure, yeah. And then the final um, criteria is that you have what the law calls a grievous and irremediable condition. And that's further defined within the Criminal Code of Canada. And as it stands right now, you need to have three things essentially true. You need to have what's known as a serious and incurable illness, disease, or disability that needs to put you in what's called an advanced state of decline in capability that's irreversible. That has to do with your function and how you're functioning. It needs to be an irreversible advanced state of decline. And you need to be suffering intolerably from either a physical or psychological condition. And essentially, those are all taken together, those are the eligibility criteria for MAID. And you need to meet all of those criteria before you'll be allowed to proceed. And then, of course, how you proceed, there are a number of procedural safeguards on top of that. You can see it's a very rigorous system. Mm -hmm. um, and procedural safeguards include things like needing to make a written request. And the request has to be witnessed by someone. And you have to have two different clinicians that agree that you meet the eligibility criteria. And they go on. There's a number of of, of safeguards. So in essence, that's what what's required. Now, from that, I, a couple of questions come up for me. One, I'm curious, because I actually don't know this, are there specific tests that are applied or is it up to the individual assessor or provider as far as uh, confirming lack of coercion or a patient's capacity? Right. So, so I get asked this a lot. So I, I, would, I would throw back to you as a healthcare practitioner that you know that every single day with every single interaction with every single patient, we are constantly, even intuitively sometimes, assessing someone's capacity, their voluntariness. When we, when we offer medications or prescriptions or tests that we recommend, we need to make sure that the person we're talking to understands what we're suggesting and why we're suggesting it. Mm -hmm. So we, we kind of do that intuitively in our work. 
in some sense, it's no different with MAID. Now, of course, the bar is a little higher, you might argue. Sure, I can assure you, those of us who do this work, take that pretty seriously, right? If we get this wrong, this is actually in the criminal code. I mean, the liability is is jail time. So no one here is trying to be a cowboy. So there's no specific objective test that we use to assess voluntariness or coercion or even capacity, although there are a number of tests we can use, Mm -hmm. especially for capacity. So we all use what we need of our clinical skill in order to make those assessments. And people ask me if I, you know, if I I know how to do that, or how do I know how to do that, or if I am sure I'm doing it enough, you're asking me if I know how to do my job. So yeah, I, I'm not really insulted, but I'm just saying I, I do know how to do my job. Mm-hmm. And it's been many decades I've been doing it, and I take it very seriously. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. When I'm sure a lot of things are on a spectrum, too, of what, and that's how you have to be able to do your job, because it's not, there's no black and white, this guy has this, and therefore A, B, exactly. and C. Yeah. There's a lot of gray area and there's no limit to to getting help. If I'm seeing someone and I'm concerned that that I'm not clear if they have capacity or not, I can call a friend. I yep. can call a consult. I can ask for a psychiatrist to give an opinion or a neurologist or a mm. geriatrician or a colleague who does this work as much or more than I. So, you know, I, 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 I access the resources I need in order to do my job properly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm wondering with the uh, tweaking because uh, that you said came down last year did that come out of just necessity of change or is there is because one thing i don't know as i know that's we're making strides forward but is there people trying to take this back too well there's definitely people on all sides of this argument i mean of this of this care i mean i think canadians have shown consistently over decades and over multiple surveys a very very strong desire to support this medical care. And I, I do think this is medical care. Um, and there are those who would argue that we shouldn't allow it. And there are or mm-hmm. those who argue we should allow more. Mm-hmm. I, I would I would maybe clarify that I'm not personally an advocate for or against anything. Um, I, my organization, CAMAP, is not an advocacy organization. You know, mm-hmm. Dying with Dignity Canada is an advocacy uh, organization. We are there to support those that do it. So to some extent, we kind of teach and preach that we do the care to the highest degree possible under the current law, whatever right. that law is. Yeah. We think because we work on the front lines, we have much to add to the discussion. We offer our consultation and our opinions to anybody who asks and to government about what is working, what isn't working, where we see change could be made, and they're free to take our opinion or not. So when we talk about tweaking mm-hmm. uh, in last year, some of those tweaks uh, were the result of an a fair bit of consultation across the country. There were roundtables mm-hmm. held in multiple provinces. There was a, a fairly open and transparent uh, consultation process by the government for the public and the healthcare community. And certainly CAMAP uh, had a voice in that consultative process. Mm-hmm. But as I mentioned earlier, one of the main impetuses for that change came from uh, a court case in Quebec called the Truchon case, where one of the original eligibility criteria for MAID used to be uh, that a natural death needed to be reasonably foreseeable, which is a complicated term, meaning some sort of relationship with end of life. Uh, so it could have been temporally very close, as in you're dying next month, or it could have been predictability, like I, I don't know exactly when it will happen, but I know because of your illness and diagnosis, it will be happening. Mm. And so that criteria to require natural death to be reasonably foreseeable was not in the original Supreme Court decision on the Carter case. Uh, I think it was consciously left out of that. There are other jurisdictions uh, where it's very important that that's part of their eligibility. The United States is a great example where every single state where it's possible, they have a requirement 
that death needs to be uh, happening within six months, that it needs to be a terminal illness. Um, that is not the case in the Netherlands. That is not the case in Canada. And so when the government tried to impose this criteria in the original law under C-14, there was an immediate challenge to that. And it took four or five years. But in 2019, the Truchon case in Quebec made very clear why this was a violation of charter rights in Canada. Uh, and they struck that out. And so the federal government, rather than challenging or appealing that decision, made a commitment to bring the federal law in line with that provincial decision. So kind of once they were doing that, they came and did consultation and said, well, what else needs to be fixed? Anything else that we could tweak? Mm -hmm. And that's where they did that consultation and, and heard from other people and made some changes. I, I mean, uh, not to call back one of our previous episodes, but our second episode we had, we had actually a, uh, a vet tech on, a friend of ours. Mm -hmm. And she's uh she's been practicing practicing veterinary medicine for a while and something that kind of really she spoke to to amanda and i both of us that's kind of like hit with us is that she she would would talk about euthanasia with animals and she goes this is the treatment we decided on exactly and it's like a treatment it's like you don't think of people needing that treatment and it was very we were like oh yeah that's a that's a treatment it's you a know, medical procedure. So it's, for a, sure. a, a, it's medical care. You know, they don't think of it as like, because that's how they, they write it up. The treatment is this. And for the dog or cat or whatever. And, you know, we don't think of that as people, but it is sort of, mm -hmm. that is sort of, I don't know, that's something that I've yeah. no, it stuck out to us. But, yeah. I think it's one of many. I mean, there are many choices at end of life that patients might choose to follow, right? There are different ways to experience your end of life, and there's different tools in the toolkit. Mm -hmm. You know, coming from a family practice background, you know, we, we treat people from birth right through adolescence and young adulthood and adulthood and, and right through end of life. And there's different tools at different times. Mm -hmm. Palliative care, palliative sedation, you know, different types of supports made. These are all different tools in our toolkit. And I, I think it's all part of the same spectrum. Um, mm -hmm. and, and what I think is important is that patients are made aware of all the possibilities, mm -hmm. all the options. And then filter that through their own value system and their own cultural background, their own belief system. And if they're knowledgeable about what their options are, then they can make a, an educated and informed choice about what's best for them. Mm. That's really what's important. Absolutely. Yeah. Backtracking just a tiny bit. So currently, the, the access to MAID in Canada has two streams sort of once you've gone through the process of, of actually proving your eligibility. I was wondering if you could maybe speak a little bit to the, the differences between those two streams and how that plays out. Yes, good point. Thank you. So, so with the new law it, since 2021, with the change, um, the fundamental difference, as I've mentioned before, is that they've removed the criteria of needing to have a natural death that's reasonably foreseeable. What the government realizes is that when you remove that criteria, a new, uh, I'll say, type of patient, new stream of patients who are suffering intolerably now have access to MAID who didn't before. Mm -hmm. the, the truth is, though, that once you remove that criteria, it also opens up the possibility that people, um, say, with um, mental health disorders or chronic pain syndromes, people who have probably really complex scenarios can also now find a route to access MAID, which is, which is what was meant to happen. But there was a little fear about how we were going to deal with that, whether we had adequate safeguards, whether we knew enough about how to assess these patients. And so what the government did is as soon as they removed that criteria, they created two different tracks to access MAID. So to be crystal clear, Every single person has the exact same eligibility criteria, which we've already talked about. 
Once those have been met, then the safeguards, the track that you follow is determined by one thing. And here's where it gets confusing. The fork in the road is determined by whether your death is naturally whether a natural death is reasonably foreseeable or not. So it, to be clear, it's not an eligibility criteria for MAID, but it will determine which safeguards you need to follow. So to make it more understandable, if your death is reasonably foreseeable, if you are a patient with terminal stage four metastatic cancer, you are likely to die from your disease in a relatively short period of time. You would go on what they call track one, reasonably foreseeable death, and the safeguards that need to be met are A, B, C, and D, you know, all the things we mentioned before, written requests, two clinicians agree, needs to be witnessed, you need to give consent, and they're fairly straightforward and a short list. If, however, your death is not reasonably foreseeable, and, and we're still new with this, but anecdotally what we're seeing, about half of those patients coming forward are those with chronic pain syndromes of some sort. Maybe someone who's lived with 15 years of cluster headaches or something, and they really are at a place where they feel that they're suffering intolerably and looking to access MAID. So they have to meet a different set of, of, of safeguards, and they're more robust, um, and there are many more of them. So they include things like a minimum 90-day assessment period. And that's a minimum. It might take a year to assess them properly, but it has to take at least 90 days. You also need to have one of the clinicians who's doing the assessment, one of them needs to have expertise in the condition that's causing the intolerable suffering. And that's so that the patient can be aware of their diagnosis, their treatment options, the, the prognosis, maybe some new things that are on the horizon they hadn't heard of before. If one of the clinicians doing the assessment doesn't have that expertise, it's mandated in the law that you consult out to find someone who does have that expertise and that it's shared amongst the assessors. There's other uh, safeguards that need to happen. The uh, patient needs to be made aware of what the available means are to reduce their suffering. Maybe they hadn't heard of them all before. They need to be offered access to those resources, maybe mental health resources, maybe community resources, maybe disability resources, maybe palliative care. So they need to be aware of them, they need to be offered consultations to access them, and they need to give what we call serious consideration to those options. And all of that needs to happen before patients on this track too are able to proceed with MAID. So you can see, again, it's quite rigorous. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And then looking to the future, I know that right now we're in a two-year holding pattern from the date of the last changes to where they're considering another reevaluation, specifically in relation to mental health-only diagnoses and access to MAID. Actually, I'm just going to clarify for sure. you. So I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what's coming down the pipe. So just to be clear, in the change that happened in March of 2021, there was a desire by the government uh, when they took out the reasonably foreseeable clause and they saw that mental health patients might have access to MAID, mm -hmm. they realized that we needed to think a little harder and longer about how to do that properly. Mm -hmm. They want they, What they in, put into the legislation is that one of the criteria which says you need to have a serious illness, disease, or disability, if they said if the patient, if they only, if their sole underlying reason for accessing MAID is a mental health disorder, they will not qualify as a serious illness, disease, or disability for the purpose of a MAID, and they are excluded from this law. The Senate, when they were debating this, looked at that and said, you can't do that. That's discriminatory. And you tried to do that with reasonably foreseeable the first time. It got shot down. It's going to get shot down again. Don't do that. And so they had a little negotiation back and forth, and they decided that 
it will be an exclusion, but only for two years. And at that point, there is an automatic sunset of the exclusion. So if nothing changes and the law is not amended, it will automatically be true in March of 2023 that those whose sole underlying condition is a medical um, condition, is how they word it, that they will be able to access me. Okay. The exclusion will automatically disappear. And that is the only change that's built in to the to the changes that have happened. There are, however, other issues that are being discussed and debated potentially for the future. And there are task forces that have been set up and disbanded in a variety of ways to look at other issues. And maybe that's okay. what you're you're talking about. Right. Yeah, no, you're totally correct. I had misunderstood. I My understanding had been that uh, I didn't realize it was an automatic Automatic, we call it a sunset. Clause. Yeah. Okay. I was thinking that at that point, they were going to sort of readdress and then consider. But okay. So there is a national task force that was set up in April of 2021 to address this specific issue. How do we approach these patients? What guidance do we need? What safeguards might we want to add? And they're due to report a year later, so in spring of 2022. Mm -hmm. And then it gives us a full year to try to, you know, decide how best to address this before the law changes. Fascinating. Yeah. There is, however, a second task force, a parliamentary task force that was set up at the same time to look at the issues of mature minors, of advanced requests, mm -hmm. of the state of palliative care in Canada, of the state of disability uh, uh, resources in Canada, and the overall rollout of MAID since 2016. That parliamentary committee unfortunately got disbanded with the national election and right. has yet to be reformed. They're also supposed to uh, report in the spring of 2022, but I, for one, doubt that they're going to make their deadline. Say that's going to be hard to do if they don't exist. Yeah. <laughs> oh, interesting. So, I, with I mean, with the I I don't I don't know how you know involved or aware you are at the political level, but with the current you know political powers in place and stuff, do you see? It likely uh, that there are going to be additional changes, you know, where they where they go back and reform that second committee, or you know, look at making further adjustments in the future, or do you think we're likely to just sort of rest on our laurels and sit where we are for a while? That is a great question. Um, I, I probably wouldn't. I would be careful how I personally uh, state what I think will happen, but I, I think I think that the current government is content with the changes they've made. Right. I think that there's no desire to open up that again. And I don't see this government making further amendments to the law. I think that there is probably will to reform that um, that review committee. I think it's super important that that review committee go ahead. And there's a lot of pressure, I think, to get that work done. It's already late and it's and now it's being delayed further. Mm -hmm. So I think that that will happen probably under this uh, this current government as well. Um, but I don't know when or how quickly that'll happen. Yeah, that makes sense. I think the Canadian people have a will to see some change, though. And significantly, there is a strong amount of support for the idea of an advanced request for MAID. Yes. And that, to be clear, is when someone already has a diagnosis but is not yet at the end of their illness. Mm -hmm. And most commonly, we talk about that in cases of dementia or Alzheimer's. Right. So if someone's given the diagnosis of Alzheimer's and then they, they maybe want to say, well, if A, B, and C come true in my life, mm -hmm. I would want an assisted death if these things were true. Can I sign that now? Mm -hmm. And that's an advanced request. And there's tremendous support amongst mm -hmm. Canadians for that. And that is currently not legal in this country, just okay. to be clear. Now, how does that compare to currently the waiver of second consent that the patients can have in place? Right, exactly. So there's a lot of confusion about that. So in the new amendments in 2021, um, they made this two-track system. So track one for those whose death is reasonably foreseeable and track two for those who isn't. 
along the and, and the different safeguards. There are several safeguards that are shared. One of them is that the patient must give their consent immediately before the medication is given for made. But there are two exceptions to that, and one in particular that is only allowed for track one patients. Right. So if your death is reasonably foreseeable, although you have a requirement to give consent immediately before the procedure, there is a way to, uh, there is an exception to that in certain cases, and it's called a waiver of final consent. It's essentially a waiver of the requirement for a final consent at the end. And that that comes from, the best story to explain that is uh, is the story of Audrey Parker, who many Canadians will have remembered hearing her name. She was a 57-year-old uh, woman in Nova Scotia who had breast cancer, and she's quite a vivacious, outgoing woman um, who, for a number of reasons, she, she loved Christmas. She loved that season, and it was very important to her. Um, and her disease progressed, and she applied for MAID, and she found herself qualified for MAID, found eligible, and was busy trying to, to figure out when she was going to plan her death. And she was thinking maybe after the upcoming Christmas season in January of that year, she would want to do that. She was then told in the summer, in the late summer, that her disease had metastasized to the lining of her brain and that she was likely going to progress. And it was unclear whether she would make it to January or not. Or if she did, it was unclear whether she would retain the ability to make her own healthcare decisions because the potential for the illness to interfere with that was very real. So Audrey Parker said, well, I am currently assessed and approved for MAID. I'd like to sign consent now, thank you very much. While I have my capacity mm -hmm. to do that, I'd like it in January. And even if I lose consent, my capacity, I'd still like you to go ahead. But that, of course, was not legal, and that is not legal. And so um, there was a, a kind of a national campaign to raise awareness about this issue. She did a lot of work to raise this issue. It's kind of a, uh, a very special subset of patients um, who've already, you know, requested MAID and been found eligible for MAID. Mm. And so in the new law, they made this exception. For those whose death is reasonably foreseeable, if you have requested MAID, been assessed for MAID, been found eligible for MAID, and already planned and chosen a date for your MAID procedure, if you are at risk of losing capacity to make that decision and you have a conversation with the provider and you enter a written agreement with them about that, you may give consent as you plan that now. Mm. Maybe your date is next Thursday at 3, but if you lose capacity between now and next Thursday at 3, that provider could go ahead and provide you that mm. assisted death without being criminally liable. So that's called a waiver of final consent and only for that very specific circumstance and that type of patient. Yeah. I was going to say that seems to be like, a, it's, I mean, when you say it like that, it's, it almost seems like a no-brainer to be able to do that, for especially when you're, you know, losing capacity because of whatever disease you do have. And I mean, that one just happens to be something because, you know, it's a, I mean, it's, it's no different than having a will the way I look at it. It's, it's right, very it's similar. Our, and, uh, yeah. yeah in, in, in my opinion, and that of many providers, that is probably the most significant change. One of the mm -hmm. most significant changes in the safeguards with the new law and a very welcome one, because as a provider personally, probably the hardest two things I do. One is to tell people who are suffering that they don't qualify. That's a, a mm -hmm. very difficult conversation. But the, but at least as hard, probably harder, was to walk into a room with a patient who I've known and assessed and been, you know, I'm, I'm kind of advocating for and mm -hmm. helping them. And I've promised them I would help them and to walk into the room and find them unrousable mm -hmm. on the day of the MAID assessment and not be able mm -hmm. to proceed oh. is a terrible predicament. Yeah. And the family's there and they're asking you and you know, until this waiver existed, 
I couldn't. It was just mm. illegal as much as it made sense to me. I couldn't yeah. do it. Now yeah. there's a tool to use so that situation doesn't have to happen. Mm. And, and I think we owe a great debt to Audrey Parker for raising awareness about that issue. Yeah, I absolutely. mean, honestly, everyone who's gone to bat for this over the years, because I can't even, I cannot fathom what it would be like to be coping with a terminal diagnosis and uh, the the time and energy and emotion involved in that. And then also, you know, doing all of the work, which on its own would be incredibly time consuming and, and energy consuming to, to advocate for social change, you know, for, for the broader population. Like that is the sort of person that could do that just blows my mind. I, I don't think I could. Extraordinary. It's, Absolutely extraordinary. It's amazing. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. What, uh, may I ask what what um, what happened with that end of that story there too? Because uh, she was obviously Audrey Parker. Very, yeah, did she make it to Christmas? And Audrey decided to not take the risk. Oh, is and that right? She died in November. Oh, she didn't wow. want to lose the capacity. Mm. She didn't want to lose the opportunity to choose when and where right, she'll die. Because that wasn't in place yet. She was just used yeah. as sort of a catalyst. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, interesting. Good. To, mm. Yeah. Wow. So this kind of brings us around to an opinion question I have for you with with your background and experience. In your opinion, how do you feel like Canada's checks and balances stack up? Do you feel like they're sufficient? Do you feel like they're overbearing? Do you feel like there's not enough? Would you change anything about them? Oh, to have the power to. <laughs> <laughs> um, Blue sky thing. That's what this is for. So we're <laughs> right. hoping lots of people hear this. So, <laughs> Well, I, I would say... I would say there are certainly, as I mentioned earlier, there, there are certainly people who feel that that there should be that there should be no law, that this is an issue of healthcare between a physician and their patient, that um, all this rigorous process and paperwork, of which there is mm-hmm. much, um, and all these checks and balances, really, re- some people believe there's just no place for that, and right. this should be a decision between a patient and a doctor. There, on the other end of the spectrum, there are those who feel that there should be many more safeguards and that there should be review panels and permission granted and everything in triplicate and and more. I think we found a very Canadian compromise. I think we've taken a very, very important and really essentially excellent step into it where we have a rigorous process, we have government regulation, we have federal law, we have provincial oversight, we have conscientious and compassionate clinicians who take their job seriously and do not want to go to jail, I think we found a pretty good middle ground. I mean, overall, I would want to emphasize, I think Canadians are proud of this. I think it, it's, an, it's, a, it's, a, it's an example of our humanity that we can do this. And I think overall, we got it right. I think we will forever debate the nuances and the details of it. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there are changes down the road for Canada that I think will be welcomed. And we mentioned advanced requests. And I think it's an extremely complicated topic, but I do think it's coming. And I do think it, it probably needs to come, but it will be difficult. Mm-hmm. And I do think the idea of mature minors having access to this care, uh, to some extent, it's a bit of a no-brainer, to quote you. Mm-hmm. Um, why should a, 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 a person who's 17 and a half who has a, a, right. a, a terrible illness that is suffering intolerably not be able to access is simply because of age? We have the concept of mature minors because they are capable of consenting mm-hmm. uh, to their own health care after a certain age. And that's what a mature minor is, someone who has it's based on their capacity, not based on their age randomly or arbitrarily. Mm-hmm. So I think someone who proves that they have that capacity should be able to make this decision for themselves. Um, I think it would be extremely rare. I think it would be extremely sad. Mm-hmm. Um, I think parents need to be involved in some way. But I think we can probably work out a system where it makes sense and not age discriminatory. So I think that will probably come one day. But right now, I'm quite content with how the law stands. And 
I think we've we've had a, a really an evolution in the understanding, a maturation of the understanding of how it works. I mean, it's very different in 2016 than it is in 2021. Um, you know, my comfort level with what the law says and means and how to implement it clinically has, has changed and grown over the years, and I think it will continue to improve. So mm. I, I think we I think we did a pretty good job in Canada. The other thing, I, just you didn't ask, but I'm going to mention, yeah. mm. I think we do something kind of unique in Canada, which is often glossed over, but I really think is important. And it's just by having a very quick glimpse into how how other jurisdictions have come to this compared to how Canada has come to this. Mm-hmm. So. Canada is unique in that um, it came through a high court decision, right? We talked about Sue Rodriguez. We talked about the Carter case. The Supreme Court in Canada struck down a blanket prohibition based on the Charter of Rights and Freedoms of Canada. That's a constitutional document that talks about the rights of Canadians, right? Mm-hmm. In other jurisdictions, it's either come through um, you know, voter ballot initiative or state legislative change or... Um, tensions that doctors felt between their duty to, you know, preserve life and the duty to reduce suffering. And so there was like tension in the medical field. And so like the Netherlands dealt with that by, you know, dealing with with that sort of tension. But in Canada, it's actually a rights-based issue. It's very, very different. And it's really important because it places the patient at the very center of the issue. It's, it's a patient right. And so therefore, all the infrastructure and all the language of our law and how we approach it is therefore patient-centered. And I don't think we should overlook that. I think Canada's model is not only unique, but um, it's importantly different. And mm-hmm. placing, the pa- placing the patient at the center like that is key. And that's why I think it, it may be a model for other jurisdictions to look at. Mm. That's interesting. That's, that's sort of why I'd asked, because I, 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 I'd known a little bit that that was... Uh, I just by coincidence, when I was taking law in high school, that was the Sue Rodriguez thing was happening. And that's what I remember my teacher saying is, is different is that this is like, it's someone saying, I don't believe in this law, you know, yeah. it's just like, why are you telling? Because, you know, we can have a do not resuscitate order to be like, no, I don't want to be alive anymore in that way. And don't want the inf- intervention. So it's interesting that you can, you know, sort of the sort of the opposite way of yeah, it's uh, not do not resuscitate, but do not. I mean, sort of. The, it's the same idea, right? Because uh, really, what we're doing is just prolonging the inevitable for some people and making them suffer. And even something Amanda and I have talked about before, because Amanda's, you know, uh, an ER nurse, so she says, you know, it's it's horrible that some people get resuscitated, you know, and then that's the they have a their end of life is, you know, years of trying to recuperate from that. Yeah, I think so. we, we haven't talked about advanced directives, which are, are documents that people can make to make their wishes clear. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't affect MAID. It doesn't, no. Advanced directives are not useful for assisted dying. It's the one exception. Mm-hmm. But, but advanced directives allow people to state beforehand what is and isn't important to them so that if they're hit by a bus yes. and put on a ventilator um, yeah. or you know, needed to be resuscitated, their voice can be still heard and, mm-hmm. and respected. Um, and it can say in certain circumstances, I do not want to be resuscitated or I do want to be resuscitated mm-hmm. or I want you to put me on a ventilator and try for six months or mm-hmm. I don't want you to do that. And so patients have different tools to make their, their wishes known. And, and you mentioned them. And I think advanced directives and advanced care planning is super important. And every Canadian should be should be considering that. Well, we do have some guests coming up on that. Actually, that, uh, our, next, our yes. next episode after this will be, yes. be focused on that. Perfect. So. <laughs> Perfect. I am full fan mm-hmm. of that. Because it is never-endingly stunning to me how few people have any idea 
of the of the tools that are available to them as far as planning for their healthcare or their end of life goes. Mm -hmm. People really just have no concept of what is available to them or or what what it what is available means for them. Like they just they just no idea. So and on that on that note, I would say just to be clear, made is legal in Canada mm -hmm. across the entire nation in every corner. It is available all across the nation. It is covered medical procedure. It does not cost any money. Right? It's mm -hmm. a covered medical procedure in Canada. It does not affect your life insurance policies or beneficiaries. These mm -hmm. are things that people ask all the time and that and a lot of people don't know. It's been five and a half years yeah. and I expect if I went outside and asked the next hundred people walking down the road about MAID, First of all, I couldn't call it that. They wouldn't know what I was talking about. They have about. no idea. Yeah. Right? They think but someone's it, coming to their house to clean. Yeah. 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 But if I asked about assisted dying, mm -hmm. a big, significant chunk of them would have no idea what I'm talking about. And certainly not that it was available, legal, covered medical service mm -hmm. and doesn't affect their life. Even within healthcare, you know, my, my coworkers, you, yeah, we, we generally all know that MAID is out there, but that's really the extent of it for a huge swath of healthcare providers, which is also insane. Yeah, it's uh, it's that's no that's no benefit to the patient, right? No. Patients come to their care providers seeking information, and I think there's a lot of members of the healthcare community that are not yet well informed about MAID. And I think you know it's another example. It, this has grown on the back of of patients. Patients fought for this change. Mm -hmm. Patients, you know, made that possible. Patients come to their clinicians asking about this. It behooves us as clinicians to know what's out there. Yeah. Um, mm. uh, but a lot of the time, I have seen in the last couple of years, a lot of time, the education coming from the patient to the clinician and not the other way around. Mm. And it is interesting to me to, to, I have observed, you know, periodically, anecdotally, how not even specifically made related, although made is definitely one of the situations I've seen it, how resistant healthcare providers can be to health education from their patient's perspective. Uh, there, there's still, there's still a bit of a patriarchal bent to things where, where it's a bit like, no, I know what you need, and it's A, B, and C. You know, it's, it's interesting to watch. It's kind of yeah. sad. <laughs> I think that's starting to change. It is. It definitely is. But it, it is still interesting. Uh, you know that it, it's observable at all because we, you know, I, I consider us pretty progressive and sort mm -hmm. of up to date with the times, and it's, that's kind of archaic. <laughs> it's supposed to be collaborative. It is for sure. And it actually, it reminds me uh, of the of the confusion in the early years about the idea of, you know, whether you could bring up the topic of MAID or not with the patient or whether you were allowed to do that. So, you know, I think at the beginning, people thought only, you know, if the patient brought it up, then I could talk about it. And if yeah. I, you know, I could share it. But actually, it, it's a bit of a myth. I mean, there are times when it is appropriate to bring it up. And in fact, it's almost malpractice is a strong word, but it's almost malpractice not to. Mm -hmm. If you're offering someone you know, chemotherapy regimen, and there are three in existence, and you only offer them one, I don't think you're doing your job. Yeah, it's so a full range of options. Yeah, if you're having a goals of care conversation with someone at end of life, if you don't mention all the options to them, I'd say you're not doing your job. So there are times where it is appropriate to bring it up from the clinician side. Well, like I say, it's it goes back to like our, our vet friend. It's like if you, a dog came in with that had tumors and you go, what, what can I do? And they go, chemotherapy only. Yeah. That's what you should do. And they'd be like, okay, that's the only thing. Yep. You know? Exactly. Because it's it's interesting how, you know, the advancements of, again, an outsider, I see the advancements of, of healthcare we've had through the past, you know, 100 years are amazing. But it's also been like, there's, there's always, there seems to have been a switch to be like, don't die no matter what, you know, no matter what, keep people alive. And that's, that's been, 
I think it does a disservice to a lot of people. And also thinking that, uh, you know, it's, uh, I don't know, I don't know how to quite say it, but it's just, it doesn't, I guess, I guess just because you're dying doesn't mean you've failed at anything. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. Like, some, it's not like, it's not somewhat like medical, inevitable. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's like, it's medical, the medical community hasn't let you down. There's another option in a way. So. Yeah. I think we've seen these big shifts in the pendulum over the, over the century. You know, it used to be everybody, you know, 80% of people died at home and probably mm -hmm. at the turn of the 19th century. Right. And, yeah. uh, and now probably 80% of people die in a hospital facility. Yeah. And I think if you do, if you look at the the polls and things, people don't want that. They no. don't, right? If you ask them, they don't want that. It's very clear they don't want that. Mm -hmm. And yet somehow it's still happening. So so why is that? I, I think there's, there is, like you say, there's a certain feeling that we need to keep offering and keep offering and keep offering. And, mm -hmm. and many times, many times there are many interventions that are appropriately offered. Sure. But there, there does come a time when, when maybe we were not doing a service to our patients mm. to keep doing that. It's fun. It's something you mentioned just to go back a little bit too. It's something that hadn't occurred to me too is that because I know that that you said life insurance isn't affected because mm. that's I'm sure that's something that was put in right away to be like because I know that there is again from just remembering from laws that you know if, if you commit suicide then you know no your life insurance is not not valid not valid or drastically changes in some ways and so it's interesting that they don't. Yeah, Which I'm sure it, that's why the, 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 what do you call it? The, um, safeguards are put in place and checks and balances too. Cause yeah, there's a difference. You, right. Exactly. There's a yeah. difference between suicide and assisted dying. And exactly. I think the legislation recognized that in the beginning and in, in that they, you know, it kind of started from the federal benefits down. They were very explicit about federal benefits not being affected mm. if you received assisted dying. Mm -hmm. And the insurance industry has, you know, understood the difference. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a medical procedure. Uh, and so it's, it's recognized as such. And I'm, I'm not familiar with someone having problems with that. Yeah. No, that's interesting though. Yeah. And people worry about that. Yeah, absolutely. I would imagine. That, yeah. For some people, I could see that being a huge consideration. To a degree, you, you've spoken to this already in some of your, your previous answers, but I'm, I'm just curious if there's any expansion to be done in it. How do you feel like Canada stacks up in comparison to other places where assistance in dying is legal as far as philosophy of approach, logistics, equity of access, things things like that. Are there any pearls you would take from anywhere else that you think are really interesting or valuable? Mm. Um, that's an interesting question. I, I think um, I am a little bit limited in my understanding of other jurisdictions, though I think I have a pretty good understanding. I would say one of the things that's done a little bit better, say in the Netherlands, they have a really strong primary care system. Mm -hmm. So pretty much everyone has a family doctor or a primary care provider. And the vast majority of, of assisted dying is done by those general practitioners. So they have a large number of people that do very, very few procedures because they kind of take care of their own patients. Um, I think we thought that might happen in Canada, but our primary care system is perhaps not quite as strong as we might mm -hmm. like it to be. And rather than have a lot of clinicians do a little bit each, and many of our colleagues from the Netherlands said to us, you know, you really need to pace yourself. You need to give yourself time off. You need to, you know, it's a, it's a difficult thing. It's an emotional thing. Kind of a lot of warning about self-care, which is all very valued and, and uh, helpful. Um, what we found is it's actually very few clinicians doing a lot of the work. So I think, I think that could be improved in Canada. I think um, the number of people doing this work is still quite small, uh, relatively speaking. And that's something that I think in the future we need to address. Um, and it's an access issue because if you don't have people willing to do assessments and provisions of made in large swaths of the country, mm -hmm. then people in the 
those places can't access it. So to say it's legal is nice, but if you can't access it, it's useless. Yeah. Um, and we see we see that in uh, we see that in pockets across the country. We see that in other jurisdictions, especially in, in the United States. Mm. But comparatively, we do allow both self-administered made, which is a drink that someone drinks themselves. That you know we we provide the medication and then the patient drinks. Um, but but it's done almost never in Canada. And we have clinician-administered uh, assisted dying, which is 99.99% of what we do. And many jurisdictions actually don't have that. So I'd say we have a real, um, it's a real advantage in Canada mm-hmm. th- that is allowed in the Netherlands and Belgium, but not anywhere in the United States or Australia or New Zealand or Spain, or other places. So um, that's really important because there are patients who uh, who maybe don't have the ability to sit up straight and hold the glass and sip from a straw and use their digestive system. That's not always possible at end of life for many, many patients. So that, that we allow that access is, I think, uh, excellent in Canada. So I think there's some things we can do better and other things that we do better. Mm-hmm. Mm. I and mean, I have to say, I, I think you sort of spoke to this sentiment earlier. I, I really think that overall, uh, my personal opinion of what Canada's accomplished so far is that we've done a pat on the back for us. I think we've done quite well. Yeah, I, tremendous, I, I'd I'm say. I'm quite pleased. And, and I'm just going to put the plug in for, for my colleagues over at CAMAP. I mean, they are an extraordinary group of, of clinicians and healthcare practitioners and care coordinators and nurse navigators from across the country. These are committed, mm-hmm. passionate, and compassionate healthcare providers. And I cannot speak enough about my colleagues who do this work. Now, with your experience, you know, through CAMAP and, and with your personal participation and just, you know, growth through the system, you know, as made has been in place and things, and, and with it being a, you know, a smaller group of providers uh, for the service, how do you find that is for the providers? How, how is the self-care? How is the support? How is the burnout? What, what do you feel like that's been like? I would, I, I have to answer that kind of pre-COVID and post, yes, to be honest. Yes, um, I think what we, so we were quite cautionary in the beginning. We did have um, advice from colleagues from other jurisdictions, as I mentioned, to be to be careful and to provide self-care. Um, and I, for myself, I know the first time I did this, I took the rest of the afternoon off. My husband knew I was going to do this. My best friend knew. Like, you know, I gathered around the resources I thought that I might need that day, allowed myself the time to reflect on what I was feeling. But But interestingly, what we have found as a community is that um, we haven't found a tremendous amount of, of difficulty, kind of personal tension and difficulty. For sure, there are examples of that. And for sure, cases can be extremely emotional. But overall, uh, it's quite clear that there's um, a sense of reward in doing this work. And it's kind of difficult to talk about because you're worried about the optics. But I have to tell you, um, the two emotions that I that I feel from my patients the most, bar none, that is kind of overwhelming when you do this work, are relief and gratitude. Mm-hmm. People are so relieved to be able to have an open and honest conversation about their choices, even if they never choose to do this. Sure. Just the fact that you're having that conversation yeah. is already something they're grateful for. And so it's very therapeutic. Like I think the most therapeutic thing I do is sit down and have the conversation. And 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 tied with that is when people are eligible. When I tell someone, you actually have the ability to do this. You're empowered now. You have the choice. You're eligible. Everything's in place. Paperwork is done. If this is something you feel you need, I'm going to help you do it. And again, whether they do it or not is almost irrelevant. Being empowered with that choice. Mm-hmm. It's extraordinary. You can see it in their body. You can see it on the lines on their face, the way their shoulders, 
You know, they're not so tense anymore. People kind of feel like it's a like a like a test that they need to get through. Mm. And then when they're finally empowered, they're so grateful for the opportunity, just knowing the possibility. It's really overwhelming. And so doing this work and offering that to someone who is by definition suffering intolerably and coming to you for help. I mean, what an extraordinary privilege for me to sit across from them and offer them this. Yeah. And then if we go through with it and that's what they want, I feel like I am offering a dying person their dying wish. That's yeah. kind of what I feel like I'm doing sometimes. So how do I feel when I do it? How do providers feel? Feel like we're doing the right thing, that we're following the law, providing good care, and uh, and privileged, really honored to be invited into that intimate space. I think you know that I used to do maternity work. It's very similar to a birth, right? Absolutely. It's yep. very well, you know, intimate it's, space. Well, that's the thing. A lot of people think the opposite of death is life. And it's not. It's no. birth. Really. <laughs> yeah, death is part of life. It is. And that, that's that's one of the reasons we're doing this is because we, you know, it's something like for me, I'm a comedian and I try to talk about things that people don't want to talk about sometimes, but I, I don't want to offend anyone either. Yeah. But also, you know, I just also want to make people laugh. Yeah. And, you know, so it's, it's, uh, death is, is, imagine if we just couldn't talk about going to the washroom with anyone. Right. It's something that we're all <laughs> Anyone gonna do <laughs> all we're gonna do and it's uh, you know if we could never talk about it or ask and be like i need to use the um well uh you know it's, yeah i need to go over there and why it's just you know it's it seems insane and so that's why we're like hey we, why don't we talk about this because everyone's gonna do it no matter what and like i say when you said you you feel empowered i'm sure you i know it's not probably not the same thing but even just the uh I'm sure when, when a baby's born, there's relief on the parents. Oh, yeah. Right, you know? <laughs> Big and relief so, when the baby's out. <laughs> exactly. And so same idea to be like you, you because there there's a certain amount of like no control. You're like, let's see what happens here. And, and the same thing when you're, I'm sure when you have a, a terminal diagnosis or you are dying, it's like, you give people back control. Exactly. You know? Control is a big issue. Mm -hmm. And believe me, they all do it in the same way. It's a little bit like birth, right? So, yes. okay, in the end, a baby comes out in one way or another. And so you think, yes. oh, it's all the same. It is not yeah. all the same. I've been to thousands of births mm -hmm. and each one is unique, right? Yeah. Each person is unique. Each family is unique. Each birth experience is really unique. Mm -hmm. It's the same with death. Sure. I've seen celebrations with mimosas and mm -hmm. Hawaiian lays around their neck. Mm -hmm. I've seen people quiet with just their best friend and everything in between. They're all unique. Sure, at the end, we have the same product, but yes. each family, each patient, each setup, each procedure is really unique. Mm -hmm. Okay, that is the perfect segue. I couldn't have written that better. I, I Would you be willing and or able to share with us any stories from provisions that you've participated in that were particularly impactful for you? So that's the perfect segue. I couldn't have written it better to myself <laughs> to say, obviously, as a physician, there's certain things I can't share Absolutely. publicly with my patients. But I have written a book. Oh, and it is about my first year of providing assisted dying. And in there, I have permission to tell several stories. Um, and I bring the reader into the room with me, yeah. uh, into those intimate situations. And so for lots of detail, you could read the book. But there are many of my patients as well, not many, but there are several who've, who've told their stories publicly. And certainly mm -hmm. their stories are, you know, I'm able to talk about more freely. And there, there are several, but, but it sounds a little cliche. I, I, I do think each situation and each patient has kind of left their own indelible mark on me that they're, they're quite unique. I would say overall that the patients that I meet, 
especially in the first couple of years, have all been quite extraordinary individuals, quite opinionated, mm-hmm. <laughs> quite strong-willed, you know, kind of pioneering that they would step forward and kind of demand this care. And mm-hmm. and reflect and and reflective of that, many of them have lived extraordinary lives. And so in really interesting people. And each time, I, I'm always surprised. You know, I'm, I'm touched by small things. I'm surprised by, by small things. Um, the details of many of my patients, I, I really course, can't share. Absolutely. But I, I can assure you that they are all indelible. Mm. They really are. So while we have the opening, then, could you please tell us the name of your book and when it's coming out? Oh, well, well, thank you for asking. <laughs> <laughs> the book is called This is Assisted Dying. And it uh, is published uh, March 2022. It will drop. Yay! Mm. Uh, it's been published by Scribner. It's the Simon & Schuster in New York City. And I'm super excited to finally get it out to market. It's been a long and difficult project, which I'm finally proud of and, and eager to bust some myths and let yeah. people know about what this is and what it isn't and what it looks like and how it feels. It actually became a much more personal narrative than I expected it to be. And how wonderful to get to have a Canadian perspective on it. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah, yeah. there's really not a lot of material out there in, no. that, in that vein. And, and I, I, I'm not aware of any others that kind of come with the lens of the provider's perspective. I yeah. think we yeah. have seen some extraordinary stories in the news media about certain patients who've stepped forward and, uh, and their stories are incredibly valuable. But I, I'm not aware of, of sources from the, pers- from the perspective of the provider. So I think there's something new to add there. Forward to it. So kind of a tangentially related question. With your work in the provision of MAID, do you, do you feel or how do you feel like your personal philosophy and or approach to death has shifted with that? Yeah, um, I would say slower than I expected. You'd think I would be on all these things that I'm preaching about, but I didn't come to this because of a particular event in my family or something like that. It came from a whole bunch of other reasons. and so took a little longer than I expected, but inevitably my relationships with my patients and what I've seen um, and how people express themselves at the end of life and how their families do, they affect me and they, mm-hmm. they, they make me ponder those questions. Who, who would I want standing next to me when I die? You know, mm-hmm. if I had a choice, yeah. if, I, if I could choreograph my own death, you know, where would I want it to be? Who would I want to be with me? What have I left unsaid so far? What if something happened tomorrow? Like the big questions, they really do start to seep into your brain when you do this work because you can't help but project yourself and your own family and your own relationships in the ones that you see around you. So um, it's quite moving to see people express themselves with each other at the end of life. And so inevitably it's changed my um my desire to be connected to the people in my life and the way that I, I want to connect with them and um, just helping prioritize. I mean, I, I do understand that, as I say it, it sounds cliche, but no, it's really, really true. It's really, really true. I had a I had a 50th birthday a couple of years ago and I was deep into the work. And I remember thinking, um, I, I don't normally celebrate my birthday that much. And it was a big one. So I said, oh, let's do this. So I invited lots of people. and. and kind of to my happy surprise, a lot of people showed up. And I really felt like the party wasn't, I mean, it was for me, but I, I remember speaking about, I, I really wanted to have that party because I wanted to express myself to the people of my life. Mm-hmm. I wanted to let them know that I was so grateful that they showed up because they cared enough to show up because they're the people of my life. And so I wanted to thank them. You know, it was more of a, 
was very two-way. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think I, I did that and had the impetus to do that because of my work. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's an example of how it's kind of affected me. Do you think your work has had any ripple effects in your circle of friends and family um, as far as their approach to death or death conversations or consideration of dying? I guess I can't speak for them personally, but I I certainly talk about it whenever they ask. I I am conscious not to bring it up proactively, or not in the early days. I do now, mm-hmm. um, so they all know what I do, and they they've got lots of questions. So I I'd like to think that I've made the topic less taboo, mm-hmm. and that people are are talking not just about assisted death, but but about end of life options in general. Or you know, I I actually don't think this is going to sound crazy to you. I don't think assisted dying is about dying. I actually think assisted dying is about very much about living and how you want to live. Because once you have the choice at the end of life, mm-hmm. immediately as the patients show that gratitude, they immediately stop worrying about how they're going to die. Mm. They now have a sense of how they're going to die. Yeah. Yeah. They immediately latch onto how they want to live the time they have left. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I think that that's a conversation and that's an angle that I've really talked about a lot with my friends and family. I hope that I've done that because I really want that to be what this is about. This is about taking control of how you live, what's important to you, and how you want to live it while you're living your life. You know, how you die is part of that, but it's kind of the the mirror. Honestly, that perfectly encapsulates my my personal philosophy. And, and again, one of the reasons that we started this mm-hmm. podcast is the whole idea that by by blocking death out of our awareness, we're we're shutting out a a, a whole you know, section of reality that therefore automatically alters how we're approaching the rest of our reality. And in Mm -hmm. my personal opinion, in a detrimental way, I I get it. Death is scary. It's intimidating. It's the unknown. It's the, you know, we we want to live. I I understand all of that. But if you pretend it's not happening, then how do you possibly fully live the life that you are living? Mm -hmm. You know, I I don't know. No, I, I, I can relate to that. I mean, that's uh, I, I grew up in sort of a religious uh, background and I and I was, you know, I was taught about, I mean, for this is my personal journey, but it was, you know, you're worried about after afterlife insurance. Right. You know? And that's what you're <laughs> that's what you're really trying to do. And then you're not really living your life because you're thinking about what's, you know, waiting for you after. And so instead of and that's and it, it really does take away from the moment of because really that's all we have truly is, you know, we're. We could it's walk a, out the door a, and that elevator could collapse. You know, that's right. I mean, <laughs> yes. yeah, I mean, uh, hope not. No, <laughs> no, <laughs> but because, yeah, we, I mean, that's we, 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 you know, we can project the future and we, we can sort of live in the past, but really we only have this. And so that's, that's one of the reasons we did want to do this podcast was because of that. You know, we're not yeah. looking to be like, hey, let's talk about this thing and only talk about that because really we want to. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, people talk about their births a lot and like, oh, you were this much and boy, it was a sunny day and it was 4.30, by the way. And, you know, but we don't talk about anything in the end. And so that's, 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 that's our goal, too, is definitely to be like bring people more into the moment to be. So, because you, you know, what, what do you, I mean, it's something that you can't, you, you, I guess, control what you can you know, and not and instead of being like worried about it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of fear. Not, I mean, there is a certain element of fear about death itself. Like what mm-hmm. is that afterlife if there is one or if there isn't mm-hmm. one and all the philosophy. I, do, I actually find in my work that people are, um, it, certainly if they're near the end of life, they, they're less afraid of death. There is some fear of that. But there's a lot of fear of dying. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of fear of the process of Absolutely. dying and what that's exactly. going to look like and how undignified that might be sure. or how painful that might be. And so I think just knowing that there's support, that there's palliative care, that there are options at the end, mm-hmm. that instills a lot of 
um, calm. Like there's yeah. a sure. difference between pain and suffering. That itself can reduce suffering, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And the difference between, you know, having to slog through on your own and, and having a team to support you, you know, like it's, it's, it's two very, very different things. Well, we, I, I mean, one of the things that I, it's not my quote, but I, I try to hold on to too is like with death is, and with life is just to uh, hold on tightly, but let go lightly, hmm. you know? So as far as life goes, but because it's, who said that? That was uh, Ram Dass. Yeah. I, I think he might have stole it too, to be honest. Right? I think, I <laughs> we'll think give he would him credit for that. now. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, but it's just something I heard him say, and it, it's something that he sort of reformed. But that's really one of the things that, uh, you know, a lot of people say, it's like, well, I don't want to die in a car accident. I don't want it to, you know, I'm just worried about how I die. And yeah. not, no, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want it to be painful or yeah, whatever it is. So. Exactly. And of course, with made, you know, that's the idea is that it's a, it's a lightly, light process. Hopefully, yeah. So. Now, are there any other particular subtopics under this umbrella that, that you would like to bring forward while we're here that, I, that we haven't addressed in any of our queries? I'm sure I'll think of three after you leave. <laughs> Could be episode two. So yeah. That'll be fine. Come back. Yeah. Um, You're going to have to promote the book in absolutely. May, right? So. Absolutely. <laughs> Starting now. Um, I think... And, and I think I've alluded to a number of important topics and I... I really do want to to emphasize the care and the um, meticulous nature of the work that my colleagues do. Mm -hmm. I, this is really something the people in this field take very, very seriously. I, can't I think see the public anyone needs to know that it unless they were yeah very dedicated mm -hmm. about it, you know, yeah. and conscientious. Yeah, and I think I think the public needs to know that. I, I think that there's a fear, maybe, or there there might be a fear. That people take this lightly, or that you know they're just—I don't know—I don't—I don't really know, but maybe they're power hungry, or the—I don't really know. But I—it's my my strong experience that people in this work care deeply about this work mm -hmm. and care to do it to the highest level. One one of the projects, actually, I, I would also promote is um, CAMAP is currently undertaking a three and a half year project, um, a federally funded, uh, very large project to develop. Uh, produce and develop um, a national made curriculum. <gasps> Wonderful. Um, because as I mentioned earlier, we have federal law, but we have provincial administration. So there are a little bit differences in how it's mm -hmm. rolled out across the country. And if a patient presents in Halifax, Nova Scotia with a certain diagnosis and, and wants to get information and they do the same thing in Vancouver, they should be having the same level of care with the same standards, the same rigorous level of everything. And although that's grossly true in practice, it's just not because Provinces have different rules and regulations and standards from each other, and how we do certain elements of the process are different. So uh, in, in an attempt to help standardize that, in an attempt to make sure that all the people doing this work have the opportunity to be educated with the same level of evidence-based curriculum, um, the same access to it in both languages in every corner of the country, online and offline, with experts or without experts, all of that by, you know, multiple brilliant minds across the country coming together to develop this. That's now underway, and, and we do hope to launch that in late 2022, if we're lucky. Um, and it's an ongoing, iterative, evaluative, evidence-based process that will we'll have elements of knowledge transfer and research, and it's really a great project. And I, I, think, I think the public would, be, um, would find some confidence in that, and I think that clinicians will find some confidence in knowing they can access this and, uh, and we're really, really proud of the work that it's going to be and what it's going to produce.
That's very exciting. And I think I think that'll be potentially an interesting way to help more care providers come in because they'll have the security of like, okay, somebody's going to tell me what I, I to need do. to know before I step into this role. Because there, you know, it's, there's so much to know in healthcare. And, and I, you know, I know personally, and certainly, you know, many people that I work with, there are things that we instinctively shy away from, because we just feel like we don't know enough, and we don't know where to find out what we don't know. And so we just don't. <laughs> yeah. And especially in the early days, there, there was no training, yeah. there was mm. no one with experience in the country. So we kind of taught ourselves, learned from colleagues elsewhere, you know, grew into that. But now there's really no excuse for that. We now mm -hmm. have a body of evidence. We now have growing experience. We have people with expertise in this. So we, we want we want people to know where to turn to. Mm -hmm. We want to have that training available. But also thank you for being bold and brave enough to be one of the people who went mm. through it blindly at the beginning, because that is, man, that's a hell of a thing to do. <laughs> it was a bit of a big blind step at first. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For well, sure. And I wonder if what you're saying, too, is uh, how, you know, you were saying um, the people that are doing this work and the behind the scenes people mm -hmm. is because because of the checks and balances and what it is and the time it can take, I'm sure it feels a little bureaucratic and like bureaucracy. A lot. Yes. yes. And 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 the difference between that checks and balance and, and all the other bureaucracy we deal with every day to day is that there's people that care behind it. It's not just a, it's not just a fill out the right, I mean, obviously fill out the right form. But, but uh, yeah. yes. before you so, tick that box, you better be sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, because I, I know for my, I mean, this is obviously way apples and oranges, but I was in food and beverage and just the checks and balances you have to do to get, be able to be, you know, a food that's safe for the public. That's is, right. It's very, you know, there's a lot of rigor role in that. And, there's some paperwork. You know, and people don't care, <laughs> really. <laughs> it is paperwork. But I, I'm sure with what you're doing, there is people that behind the scenes that do care about what they're doing. So, yeah. And I mentioned COVID. I mean, yes. Yeah. Um, between the new law and some changes and a little uncertainty about what all that meant and COVID happening oh, at the same time, yes. you can imagine we've we've not really expanded our ranks in the last year or two. Yeah. It's um it's been a challenge for healthcare workers across the country, as you well know. Um, and people are tired, and yeah. people are being drawn into other fields that they need to be working in, and they are burnt out in other ways. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's a lot we're asking of our care providers. Actually, I, I've heard I've heard it alluded that COVID has impacted made in as much as uh, there's been an increase in in requests. Is that is that actually the case? Have you noticed anything like that uh, so, with people suffering additionally with the isolations and stuff piled on top of whatever they're going through mm, due to COVID? So we don't have the formal answer because data is slow slow to cut out. There will be a new annual report coming up hopefully this spring or summer. Um, but uh, I think we were quite fearful of that in the beginning. One thing that became uh, clear fairly early on in the COVID pandemic was that patients with COVID were not going to be especially appropriate for MAID. I mean, th that was kind of a quick acting like um, virus that was making people sick very, very quickly uh, and in places. That's, those are patients that need really good quality palliative care, mm -hmm. especially if they're dying from COVID. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't really going to be that MAID's going to swoop in and help these patients. So that became clear. But it did change how we practice mm -hmm. in many ways about the, the gear that we wear and the nature of the event and the intimacy of it, you know, changed. Went from holding hands and gathered around close to everyone's got a mask on and we've got gloves and maybe we're taking six feet distance. So, so the nature of the of change. But what I wanted to say is that the general anxiety in patients, as you mentioned, those who are isolated in long-term care homes, people who can't see their families for a long time, if, you know, if they were near end of life and they were considering MAID, they maybe said, 
well, maybe another three months is not so great. I can't see anyone anyways. Mm -hmm. No one's coming to take, you know. So I think there might be some subtle shift in there. We have continued to see year on year, regardless of COVID, an increase in number uh, requesting and accessing MAID. And I don't think that that didn't necessarily change. That right. increase was going on as well. So some people have said, well, it's gone up. Well, it was going up anyways. Whether it's due to COVID or not, I don't think that was necessarily the hinge. I think the change in law did change a little bit, mm -hmm. the access to made, and so they were similar timing. Right. Um, I think it'll be a year or two before we really know the answer to that. But I definitely have seen more anxiety and more isolation and more loneliness in people. Made is not necessarily the answer for that. No. But it does um, bring more people to our attention that we try to find resources for elsewhere. No, I, I don't think so. No, that's, yeah. I think that's really covered all of the, we, I mean, mm -hmm. we've covered so much and thank we you did. for that. Mm -hmm. uh, that's covered all of my my big points. Um, the one thing that we do like to wrap up with, with our guests, is if you would take a moment and, and speak to it, if you had to de describe or define what a good death meant, what would that mean for you? Okay. <laughs> Um, you don't pre you don't get this question as a pre-screen? I do, yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm just kidding. No, I'm yeah. kidding. <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm, still, I'm trying to decide so, how to answer it, actually. Yes. Um, I would, so I'm going to, I'm going to answer it less than perfectly personally first. Fair enough. Because I have noticed by doing this work, there are certain elements that are similar, despite all the differences and unique natures of people. And I think, I think what seems to be comprising a good death in the, people that I see. Uh, first of all, a bit of, well, some people do and some people don't want foreknowledge that their death is coming. But for those who do know it's coming, a sense of control of it, a sense of planning. And, and by that, I mean, maybe finding some closure beforehand. So a good death usually uh, in, encompasses a sense of completion, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. People have uh, spoken to the people they want to speak to and said the things they wanted to say and found some closure in the issues that remain in their life. So a sense of completion, I think, leads to one element of a good death. I think there's a certain, uh, uh, almost like a ritualistic nature to it. So a good death might be a recognition that it's going on. I am dying. Mm -hmm. Here's to my life. You know, uh, thanks for the good times. Like a ritual, like a toast even. Mm -hmm. Some sort of ritualization of the event leads to a good death. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, the element of having those who are most important to you uh, near you in whichever way you want, either present physically or in the room next door or having been part of the process. So I'd say those three things probably lead to a good death, a, a sense of completion, a sense of recognizing that it's happening, and a sense of holding close the people that are near and dear to you. I think if you have those elements, the other elements are, are, uh, are uh, you know, accessories, the music mm -hmm. and the wine, mm -hmm. and, or, or not. And there's lots of variety, and, and that can really make a wonderful event. But I think those other ones are the most important. Mm. I might leave it there. I love it. That's I love beautiful. That's, yeah. that's a wonderful answer. Thank you so much. On that note, we will, we will wrap it up and call it a day. Thanks yeah, for thank your time, you so guys. Much. Thank you so Thanks much for, your for work. being here. <laughs> All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us. We hope we brought this dead conversation to life for you. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider liking or subscribing on your chosen podcast player. Information related to the podcast can be found at the link in our Instagram profile, at TMTDPod, 
and you can always follow us while you're there. Finally, please share the love. Tell a friend, maybe even a dead one, to check us out. Thank <laughs> you.